Affordability, childcare, quality of life, uh, climate change, those are all issues that I've talked about a lot. You're an advocate for millennials and believe they should be more involved. What is it that you're going to try and you know, help British Columbians with. What we need to do is we need to make sure that people feel as if there's a life they can build here. How do you get millennials more involved in leadership roles? We've got to figure out better ways to enable ownership. Sarah Gouda and Jim Check from the Now Media Group ask questions, explore topics, and shine a light on the conversations that matter. So today we have Gavin Du, who's running for BC Liberal Leadership. Gavin, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Maybe if you could start off, Gavin, just by give us a little background about Gavin and, and why he's so inclined to run for the BC Lib uh, Liberal Leadership. You bet, Jim. So I'm a born and raised British Columbian, uh, grew up in Vancouver, went to UBC. I actually spent a fair bit of time uh, in the Okanagan, got married at Summerhill Winery, uh, you know, shout out to them. But I've always been involved primarily in business with politics as a sideline. And I've seen the effect of policy on the ability to do business, the ability of a lot of people who, like me, are starting build businesses and trying to grow businesses to be able to operate within the business environment here. So I'm driven in part by that economic piece and very much so by families. I've got two young kids, uh, a three-year-old and a son who's turning one on Sunday. And for me, that's a huge motivator. I think we need to put people and families back at the heart of the way we talk about politics. And in particular, I think my party, the BC Liberal Party, needs to uh, really warm up our tone, uh, engage a new generation of people, and welcome young families into our fold if we want to be successful going forward. I guess one of the questions people would have is, like, you have little political experience, I take it? So... Yeah, you can explain uh, that. You, you, you can start there. But no, I actually have been involved in our party for longer than most of the people that I'm, that I'm running against. Um, I've been involved since uh, 2008 very actively. I've run campaigns uh, municipally, provincially, and federally. I have uh, run for the BC Liberals in a by-election. Uh, I've been very active in terms of building up the next generation in our party. So it's certainly the first time that I'm running for a leader, but I, I'm not a newcomer to politics uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I guess what I would say there is that you haven't held a seat yet, and then you're, you're going for the big chair as opposed to like working your way up. What's the, what's the logic there? Yeah, you're, you're right, Jim. Um, I think we're in a really difficult situation as a party where we need to do more to build succession. Uh, we're in a very troubling position where, for example, we have only one MLA under 45 and the NDP has 13. 25% of our caucus is women. We're in a position where we have very, very strong, solid MLAs in our caucus, but we badly need to demonstrate that we're moving forward, that we're turning the page, and that we're building a bridge to a new generation of voters. Uh, and I think that I'm uniquely positioned to do that, given that I have a lot of experience in our party, I know our party well, but at the same time, I can really demonstrate that we're turning that corner and moving forward. Uh, so th that's why I see the logic of doing this uh, at this time. And then I guess the key thing would be, what's your platform? What do you want to change? Like, how will you help British Columbians? Like, what is... What does Gavin do do for BC, like for, for myself and for Sarah? Like what, what do you do for BC that's, that's different that's happening now? I think the big opportunity, which is both a, a political opportunity, but also an economic opportunity, is this. Um, 
there is a giant missing gap in our politics in BC right now, where if you are from the next generation of business, the next generation of industries, the next generation of families, you don't see a lot of representation. And there's a real sense of disconnect and drift. So on one hand, that means making sure that we, we are signaling to the next generation that they actually can build a life here, that they can get their feet on the rungs of the ladder and they can actually have uh, have success and get a home, get a life together. On the other hand, I would say that you know my party, the BC Liberal Party, has always been the party of the economy. We're very strong when it comes to our traditional sectors, but we haven't done enough to connect with the emerging sectors of our economy, like the tech sector and others, where there's a whole generation of new entrepreneurial people, new business people, who traditionally 10 or 20 years ago would have seen us as their party, but right now they don't. So there's a real disconnect there where even from a nonpartisan perspective, those people aren't seeing themselves represented in government. They aren't seeing a path forward. And that's very dangerous in terms of them, frankly, leaving and going elsewhere to build a life or to build a company. What would be the core like platforms you would run on? What is it that you want to fix? Like other than you want to get them more engaged. But so what is their interest and in? like what is it that you're going to try and, you know, help British Columbians with? Affordability, childcare, quality of life, uh, climate change. Those are all issues that I've talked about a lot where, again, what we need to do is we need to make sure that people feel as if there's a life they can build here because that does feel like it's slipping away for a lot of young people. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that's not just a young people issue. That's actually an everyone issue. Uh, there are a lot of folks who are worried about their children and grandchildren. If your kids can't afford to live in the community where you live, then you're not going to see them. You're not going to see your grandkids. You're going to be disconnected. There's going to be a loss of family, and there's going to be a loss of opportunity. If your kids have to move to Calgary to get a job or move to Toronto to get a job, or they move somewhere else when they start a company, that really breaks down our sense of family and community. So it's about kind of addressing those issues with, again, affordability and issues like childcare and the ability to create businesses being central to that agenda. So, Gavin, you're an advocate for millennials and believe they should be more involved. How do you get millennials more involved in leadership roles and what are your thoughts on that? That's a really important question. So I built an organization called the Forum for Millennial Leadership uh, over the last few years as an extension of the work that I had done to bring a newer generation into politics. The first thing that we have to do is we have to acknowledge and talk about the fact that uh, the younger generation is actually critically underrepresented. Uh, British Columbia has among the lowest representation of younger people in our politics, whether that's municipally, whether that's provincially, whether that's federally. And I know that because we actually look at every legislature across the entire country to compare and contrast. My party, the BC Liberal Party, has gotten into a feedback loop where I would say that we, have, uh, we haven't elected somebody under 40 since 2013, for example. And that gets you into a feedback loop where you lose perspective generationally, so you lose votes generationally, so you lose potential candidates generationally. The same thing can be said from the perspective of women, from the perspective of multicultural communities, or even from the perspective of urban and suburban issues where you know, we've lost urban seats, so we've lost urban representatives, so we've lost urban relevance, so we lose more urban seats. So it's again, it's a feedback loop where I think what we need to do 
as a party and as a political system as a whole is make sure that millennials or people in general can see themselves represented because then they start feeling that they're in a conversation with government. Then they start feeling as if there's someone they can talk to, someone they can relate to, and that incremental next younger person is more likely to step up and volunteer or run or choose to engage with the political system. So I've been a big believer in trying to build up the next generation. I've done things like run boot camps for younger candidates to get them media trained, to get them policy savvy, and to make sure that they're not just kids tilting at windmills, but they're serious people being taken seriously by the system. I think one of the, the issues for the, the younger generation, I hear it a lot, is, is housing and affordability that you've, you've, you, t- you touched on. How do we get that dream back into the, in the minds of the young people? Because I know I talk to a lot of young people and they say that's not even a thing for them. When I was growing up, I knew I'd buy a house. I just, you know, be a matter of when. I think a lot of young people have given up on that, that hope and dream because the housing seems to just move further and further away every day. Mm-hmm. That is an absolutely critical issue, and it's something I talk about a lot. Because when that dream gets broken, you know, the the dream of BC, work hard, get ahead, right? You work hard, you play by the rules, you get ahead, you get a home. That's the American dream, if you will, but a version of it is also the British Columbia dream. And it feels very broken for people because they're doing what they're supposed to do, right? They're working hard, they're saving, and that down payment they're trying to accumulate gets bigger and bigger every year and they just can't do it unless they have intergenerational wealth transfer. So there's a really big challenge there where we have to figure out uh, both from a programmatic, from a policy perspective, how do we enable people to get into home ownership? And at the same time, honestly, we just have to communicate in a way that is empathetic and sympathetic to the challenges that people are facing. And I think that's a mistake that we've made before, where for a long time, there was this kind of dismissal of the issue as it got more and more pronounced. And that's where I think, especially in communities like Kelowna, uh, we have to recognize the knock-on effect that's happening. Because we used to talk about affordability and those challenges as being a Vancouver issue. Then we started talking about it as being a Metro Vancouver issue. Then we started realizing that what was happening was young families who had a few hundred thousand dollars in home equity from a shoebox in the sky in downtown Vancouver were moving to Kelowna, moving to Seashell, moving to Nelson. And as they do that, they're bidding up the price of housing in all of those communities and pricing out locals who don't have the fortune of already having equity for a down payment. So I don't think we're talking about that enough and realizing that we've got, to re- we've got to acknowledge and address the second and third and fourth order affordability challenges that we're facing as a, as a province. A lot of people have looked at that problem and they seem to get stuck on it and don't seem to have anything that kind of like, you know, that has any you know merit to it. But I look at it and I see a lot of people can afford the rent, which is basically the mortgage payment, but they just can't afford the down payment. Is there something that you would put into place that would get young families the down payment somehow whether that be a a grant or a loan or and I'm, I'm not trying to put ideas in your head but is i think that's the stumbling block how do we get that down payment into their hands agreed we've got to figure out better ways to enable ownership we also got to make sure that those programs don't backfire right i mean what you're mm-hmm. seeing right now is of course there's a lot of cheap money that's being pumped into the system because there were concerns that the housing market was going to go down during covid Instead, it's absolutely poured gasoline, 
on the issue. So, I mean, the, the important thing is when it comes to housing policy, we have to recognize we're dealing with, let's call it, you know, 15 or 17 interconnected issues that any solution you try to put forward has the risk of pulling one string and moving five others. So, you know, you, mental, you mentioned uh, rental. Here's one of the big challenges we have on rental. 60 or 70 or more percent of the costs associated with running a rental building are actually government costs. Their utilities, their property taxes, their other costs. So you've actually got a situation where rental housing providers are capped in terms of their ability to raise rents, but their costs are rising vastly in excess of inflation. And that's putting them upside down in terms of the ability to keep running that rental housing. It's creating incentives to basically give up, sell the rental housing, and it gets knocked down and built into luxury housing. So we've got some really skewed incentives happening in the marketplace where we have to look at them across the board. There are no easy solutions, but we kind of have to be unafraid to dig into the details and start addressing some of the hard conversations. Another common challenge is homelessness. What are your plans or your ideas on and uh, tackling the issue of homelessness in BC? Homelessness is critical. I used to live in the downtown east side, so I certainly saw both homelessness and the co-occurring issues, mental health and drug addiction often going with it, um, you know, up close and personal for a number of years. Uh, There's a lot of different things we can talk about in that regard. The first is we have to address root causes. So when it comes to homelessness, when it comes to addiction, when it comes to mental health challenges, we have to recognize that the root cause in a lot of cases is the breakdown of families. It's the loss of jobs and opportunity. A lot of folks that end up in homelessness are starting often in rural communities where, again, there's a loss of opportunity, a loss of job, mental health breakdown, uh, addiction issues, uh, and, and so forth. So we've got to focus on root causes, number one. Number two, we have to acknowledge the politically incorrect reality that British Columbia has become the dumping ground for homelessness from across this country. There are actually a significant number of people that are getting on a bus from Ontario or Quebec where those governments are not doing enough to take care of their people. And they're coming to the West Coast where the combination of weather and a higher level of services available is is basically making it a better place to experience homelessness. So that's a real challenge which we'll never build our way out of unless we call on other provinces to do their part. The final piece that I think is really important, and we're seeing this play out in real time in Penticton, uh, is that we've got too much of an approach from this provincial government that is kind of about warehousing the homeless with not enough wraparound services and not enough effort put into things like recovery and treatment. So if somebody is experiencing drug addiction, you know, the truth is what often happens is you're, you're in the throes of addiction. You have a moment of clarity. You want to get into treatment. And you go and you try to get into treatment, you get told there's a six-week wait. Addiction doesn't wait six weeks. You go right back out and you're back into addiction. So we have to improve uh, the availability of things like recovery and treatment to make sure that we're taking advantage of the opportunity to get people clean, to get them sober, to get them back into a normal life uh, you know, when we can. So I think there's a whole range of different services and a range of different policies that have to fit together neatly in that regard. In the interest that we don't have that much time, but the interest of, of, I guess, in what's currently going on, when you look at the current government that's, that's sitting, what is it that, that you would do better? Like, where are they stumbling, and, and, and how do you see Gavin do and, and, and his party doing better? I think that the, the main characteristic of the NDP is good intentions and bad execution. 
I think that there are a number of areas where they're trying to make things better. I think perhaps they're trying to make things better on childcare and they're failing and decimating a women-led industry. They're trying to make things better uh, on autism and they have thrown thousands of families into absolute chaos with the way that they've rolled out changes to individual autism uh, funding. I think they were trying to make things better for a small business during COVID, but they butchered the implementation of a bunch of business support programs. So I think what we need to do is we need a new government that can be trusted for its good intentions, which is something I'm very committed to, but that also has a greater degree of competence in terms of the execution of programming. And I think, you know, as a party, we need to demonstrate, we need to re-earn trust around our good intentions, and we need to make sure that we're rebuilding a government, a new government in waiting that is full of people who understand not only our longtime traditional sectors, but also the challenges that we face today, the new industry opportunities that we face today, and the challenges that people and families are facing all over the province. Do you think the Liberal Party is, is stepping up to the mic enough in, in, it, in the decisions that are happening right now, do you think that they are they have enough of a presence? Like you know, like when when an initiative gets announced, that they're stepping up enough and trying to get the word out there, or are they allowing the party to kind of just rule and get their way? Yeah, it's a tough balance. I think that the NDP has been running fairly roughshod, uh, and they've been you know they've been pushing their agenda and pushing it hard. We're in a difficult place as a party because we're going through a year long leadership race where each of the six people running for leader are trying to get out there and drive their message and get attention and bring people into the party. But that also puts the caucus in a very difficult position where you know they're somewhat hamstrung in their ability to fully engage on, on issues. Uh, Shirley Bond has been doing a fantastic job as leader uh, in the interim while we wait for a permanent leader to be in place. And I think the caucus has been doing a, a tremendous job, but we are in a tough place. Once we get our new leader in place on, on February 5th of next year and go into the spring session, I think we're going to be firing on all cylinders. I think we've got a very functional, very skilled caucus team. And I think you're going to see uh, you know, a major upsurge in terms of us holding the NDP to account uh, at a time when, frankly, I think that a cascading series of crises uh, culminating in, in the recent floods has really shaken people's confidence uh, in this government and in their ability to take care of, of people across the province. Do you think in a way they've taken advantage of, of that situation where there isn't a, like a clear unified voice right now from the Liberal Party that they've kind of just like run roughshod, as you said? Um, I mean, I, in a way, what I see in politics right now is that as sometimes it, it seems a bit frustrating for a lot of people, it, it seems like we get more changes faster. Like we're not so slow to kind of do things now. And some people would complain that maybe we're moving too fast in some regards, but like you bring up a couple of things with the floods and then food security. Like we've seen some, you know, like run to hoarding here in, in the Okanagan and then um, inflationary pressures on and gasoline, you know, rationing and all that kind of stuff. Do we have enough security? Like even if you look at our road system, sorry, I'm jumping around a bit, our road system, we have, a Trans-Canada Highway, really one highway that runs across Canada with not a lot of like options where you look in the United States, they have tons of different interstate highways and we're really relying on one major highway and, and you know, like, so when that goes down, we don't have a lot of options and it, and it can cause a lot of pain for a lot of people. We need to get a lot more um, serious and smart around uh, resiliency and critical infrastructure continuity. Um, that's something that really became a big conversation in the States. 
Um, oddly enough, the kind of post 9-11 conversation in the States was around homeland security, but it then turned into critical infrastructure continuity and making sure that you had bridges and tunnels that were intact and so forth. I think we have not done enough of that in British Columbia, and we're reaping, we're reaping the whirlwind in that regard. Um, certainly, it was evident in the response to the floods in Abbotsford. I mean, the, the provincial government was apparently oblivious to the risk from the Nooksack River uh, flooding, despite there being ample precedent in terms of the risks there. And they were very, very slow on the response. So I would say whether it comes to uh, our response to COVID, whether it comes to our response to wildfires, to the heat dome, uh, to flooding, we need to make sure that we're building greater resiliency in terms of both our operational ability to respond to crisis in the moment, our ability to communicate with people effectively in the course of crisis, but also in terms of addressing those kinds of infrastructure needs. Because you're right, we're going to, I mean, we are seeing the effects of interrupted supply chains. We are seeing the effects of uh, infrastructure falling down. We're certainly seeing, to your point, Jim, the inflationary pressures because 50% of the dairy in this province is produced in Abbotsford, a sizable chunk of that in the affected area. So we've got to get much more serious about being ready for those kinds of disruptions and understanding the implications in areas like food security. Totally agreed. Yeah, no, I guess my question has already been answered. My question was, what are your plans on handling the wildfires, the flooding, and the uh, the natural well, disasters? Well, let's talk about wildfires for a minute, yeah, let's though. let's talk about um, wildfires, because that's a big problem here. I think that's a really important issue. So, um, I mean, obviously, we see devastation after devastation. Um, one estimate that I've seen is about a billion dollars in economic impact every year from wildfires. This year, we probably will have spent a billion dollars on response plus all that economic impact. One of the things that strikes me as being addressable is uh, the ratio of preventative spending to suppressive spending. So on average, over the last decade or so, we've spent about $265 million responding to wildfires and about $32 million preventing them. That's been so my, I think this, Sorry, that's been my big question forever because in the Okanagan, obviously, we're, we've been affected almost every year for the past 10 years is that we do very little in mitigation, which is preventative. And um, you can kind of see some of the hillsides here. And it's not a matter of, you know, if it's a matter of when a fire and fires like to run up hills. um, Why aren't we taking out, you know, more of the the jack pine that easily burn and replacing that with deciduous trees? That that seems to be a like I know I know it's all about funding and that, but like it seems to be if we can keep the fires away from the homes, we won't have to spend as much suppressing fires and let Mother Nature do her job. Agreed, Jim. So, I mean, there are a lot of different issues in terms of, you know, the policies around liability for broadcast burns and in terms of, you know, all manner of different kind of forest management practices. But if we take it down to something very simple, it doesn't make sense to me that we spend nine times as much fighting fires as we do preventing them. And I think we ought to look at adjusting that ratio. Because from a financial perspective, you know, you think about that, the, the huge public sector cost, but also the private implications for people and property and livelihoods and, you know, insurance payouts and all of those costs. Money spent preventing wildfires is money well spent that will reduce costs going forward. Uh, and, you know, some of the silliest things that I've heard are people that are, that are against controlled burning because they're concerned about the... Uh, emissions coming from controlled burns. Well, 
if you're going to emit some pollutants into the environment to prevent emitting a hundred or a thousand times as many pollutants, that seems like an obvious trade-off to me because wildfires emit a massive amount uh, of, of emissions into the environment. They're terrible for lung health. Uh, they're really quite bad in terms of, of the environment. So there's a lot we should be doing there. I've talked quite actively about the idea of creating a more proactive approach where we're doing more forest maintenance, we're clearing more brush, we're doing more preventative work, and investing in smart technology that can allow us to, for example, predict the path of wildfires. There was actually a pilot program put together a few years ago, which the NDP canceled, that was focused on using GIS uh, and uh, machine learning to better identify what is the path of a fire. Because if you can predict the path of a fire earlier, you can use resources faster, you can respond faster, and you can put it out before it moves and grows. So we've got to get all hands on deck and be smarter in terms of how we spend on preventing wildfires. Yeah, the other part of mitigation is typically, well, I should say typically, a lot of fires are started human-caused. And if they tend to start near a, a city, a town, or a, or a village, if we can remove or move the forest back away, taking away the danger, probably a lot of the fires would be gone. Like if we measured what are lightning-caused fires versus human-caused fires, and if there's mitigation in there, I think we'd eliminate a lot of the fires that are causing a lot of the property damage. And, and disruption agree. and moving people out too, right? Like evacuations and... I'd agree. Sometimes we get overly precious about, you know, let's not cut down these 10 trees uh, because we like the 10 trees. But if, if cutting down the 10 trees prevents 1,000 or 10,000 trees from burning and a whole bunch of damage from being created, then, then I think we ought to be realistic and practical about it. Yeah, and then when houses burn, they tend to emit a lot of toxins too because they're... A lot of stuff in houses is made out of oil and different things where trees are basically made out of wood. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, houses burning also obviously dis displaces people. The human cost is absolutely massive. I mean, my heart goes out to people. There are people that were, uh, you know, were, were living in Lytton, uh, were displaced completely from Lytton, and were displaced to Merritt, where they were then flooded out. I mean, to go through kind of fires and floods uh, in, in one year as an individual, I mean, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, we definitely need somebody to, to spearhead focusing on mitigation because I think that will solve, you know, in the Okanagan for sure and in a lot of British Columbia because it's a very rich province in, in forestry and then having proper forestry management and all that kind of stuff, I think that would go a long way um, in alleviating a lot of those concerns. Absolutely. Is, is there anything that you'd like to touch on that we haven't covered, Gavin? Yes. Like, are there any challenges you th you would like to? Speak Why don't we of? talk about electoral boundaries? I think that's a really important change that people don't know enough about. Sure. Why don't you lead the way on that? You bet. So, as people, I think know, um, we go through a process of adjusting electoral boundaries after every second election in British Columbia, and the intention there is to rebalance the ridings. Uh, depending on population. Now, ever since 1979, there are 17 ridings that represent two-thirds of the land mass of the province that have been protected in those processes. And those are ridings that are the size of countries, where it can take you know two, three days to drive across the riding, and where representation is a real challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, what the NDP have done is they have basically uh, said it's open season on those ridings. They've removed the protection of those 17 ridings, and the Electoral Boundaries Commission now has a mandate uh, that could potentially strip half a dozen or a dozen seats uh, out of those 17. 
So if you were to go strictly just by population numbers, those 17 ridings would go down to five and you would have uh, absolutely massive unrepresentable uh, ridings uh, happening and a massive shift of power from rural uh, to urban. Because the Electoral Boundaries Commission, go ahead, sorry, Jim. Sorry, no, that's the frustration I think Canadians feel even federal elections, right? Because, you know, you stay up till the end of the election and you know that it's pretty much decided as soon as it gets out of Ontario. And I think that's the same thing. Whatever the lower mainland says is, is the way it goes and it's not really well, that's fair. That's the worry. Us. Yeah. That's the worry. If they manage to pull this off, then basically what you'll have is permanent NDP majorities where they've got no reason to go north of hope. So uh, there's a, a real concern that they're trying to stack the deck in that regard. And that, you know, just in a practical sense, you think about, firstly, all of the challenges uh, faced by rural communities. And secondly, all of the opportunities and resources and revenues uh, that come out of uh, rural British Columbia. And, and it just strikes me as being devastatingly unfair to just tilt the deck in that regard. So if, if what could happen goes through, we're going to see a situation where you have a shift of maybe a dozen seats from rural to urban. There might be one more seat in downtown Kelowna, uh, you know, maybe one in Langford, and then there could be eight or ten more seats in Surrey and Vancouver and in those lower mainland areas. So from a representation perspective, I think that's very worrisome, and we've got to make sure that we're standing up for rural representation. From a political perspective, for me, running to lead the BC Liberal Party, I talk about the fact that we've got to defend rural representation, but we've also got to get a heck of a lot more competitive in those urban and suburban ridings where we keep on losing. And in my belief, the path to doing so is that we've got to win over uh, young families. But we've got to start convincing that 30-something working parent that we're the party that's looking out for them, that we're going to address affordability issues, that we're going to talk about issues like childcare, that we're talking about the industries that they're working in, and that we're their party. And that's something we haven't done enough of, but it's something I believe that I'm uniquely positioned to do as leader of the BC Liberals. Does COVID give us some hope, this work from home, um, new kind of like, calling for a lot of people and that maybe some of those people in the cities will move to the rural communities where where housing will be cheaper land is more available um, and the lifestyle seems to be a lot more family orientated uh, covid has led to a bit of a an urban exodus where what you've seen is a whole lot of young people young families especially who are looking for more home they're looking for a backyard and yeah, work from anywhere has given them a greater degree of freedom and flexibility to move to where they want to move. So they move from Vancouver to Abbotsford. They move from Langley to, uh, you know, Langley to Kelowna, from Kelowna to Nelson. A lot of people are moving. What they want is broadband connectivity, access to hospitals and quality of life. So the opportunity there is huge where you've got people finding affordability by relocating. But the challenge, again, is if somebody who is attached to, say, the Vancouver economy is moving to Kelowna and making Vancouver money and bringing home equity, they're going to displace the local. If somebody's moving to Seashelt, they're going to price out the local. So we have to be really, really attentive to make sure that there's not this sort of cascade where the Vancouverite buys out Surrey, the Surrey resident buys out Abbotsford, the Abbotsford resident buys out Kelowna. Right? We've got to be really attentive to that, and I don't think we're talking about that anywhere near enough in terms of what the knock-on implications could be for affordability, for the ability to buy a home, uh, for, for locals who are not yet homeowners in the kind of communities that people are moving to.
Uh, Gavin, in one of your interviews, you said that people are more likely to trust city councilors and the federal government. I just thought that was interesting. Can you elaborate? I don't even remember that interview, but I think it's a good point. Um, people trust elected officials or politicians who they feel are close to them, right? They, who they feel a sense of proximity. City council, municipal government, school board, those are levels of government that are close to the people. If you are an elected official municipally, it's likely that you're at events every day, you're talking to people, you're seeing people, you're interacting with them, and there is a sense of accessibility. Uh, the further away you get, whether it's provincial or federal, the more distant you are, the more absent you are, the more you lose connection. So I think it's really important just philosophically for elected officials at any level of government, you've got to figure out how to remain remote, uh, rooted with the people who elect you. You've got to show up, you've got to talk to people, and you've got to kind of reduce that power distance. Because I think just that the way the culture has changed, the way the conversation has changed over the last few years, people have a lot less appetite and a lot less patience for people kind of preaching from on high from a distance. They want to actually talk to you. So even in my leadership campaign, we have a, a rule, which is conversations, not speeches. So all of our events, uh, we call them do Bruce because it's funny. Uh, we basically go around to craft breweries and bars and we go and meet with people and everything is just a conversation, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation or a series of one-on-five -on -five conversations. We try to avoid doing the big speeches thing because I think people are tired of that and they want to actually be able to talk to their elected officials as peers and as members of the community conversations that matter the plug that's right our, we should be having conversations <laughs> that matter Jim, I was for our show. whole time to get to a pun on the name of your show i like it took a while right i was just waiting for that right <laughs> <laughs> um i think we we're okay at this point um if there's anything else you want to add or you know I, but i do want to say like uh, you seem like a a very bright, passionate young man, and I, and I wish you well in your chase for the leadership of the Liberal Party. Thanks very much, Jim. Uh, you know what? It's been going great so far. I've been really happy with the response we've been getting. Uh, we actually, one of, our, one of our, uh, our best attended events recently was actually in Kelowna. So uh, really, really happy with, uh, with the response we're getting. And with, I think, you know, this is a very long leadership race for us as a party. It's a year long. The entire federal election was a brief holiday in the middle of our leadership. Uh, it's long, it's a marathon, it's a little tiring sometimes, but it's really healthy because it's giving us an opportunity to have a lot of long conversations with people where we're reflecting on who we are and where we go from here, what lessons we need to take from our mistakes, or what we can build on in terms of our successes in the past. It's really healthy, it's a really good thing. I've been having, having a heck of a good time doing it, and I'm, I'm really thankful for this conversation today. Thank, Thank you again. Kevin. That's the end of today's conversation. If you have any topics that you'd like to have featured, please email Sarah Gouda at sgouda at nowmediagroup.ca. That's S-G-O-U-D-A at nowmediagroup.ca.